because the sermon has already started. See, it started about a half an hour ago when Lady Carmen told you to turn to the person next to you and tell them, God is... God is... God is... Because that is my sermon this morning. That is the one thing I want you to understand is that God is great. He is a great God. And now I could preach that Pentecostal style. I could say, God is great! Ha! Or we could do it pep rally style. I could say, when I say God is, you say great. God is? God is great! You are way better at that than I thought you would be. But I don't think any of those things goes very long in terms of explaining to us what it means that God is great. So while we might work up to some of those kinds of exclamations later in the sermon, to begin with, we're going to talk about the Bible. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10, starting in verse 34. And while you're turning there, I want to give you some background on the passage because it's a pretty important one. So the book of Acts covers the spread of the gospel from the year 30 until about the year 60. And memorably, Acts commences with the first Pentecost following the crucifixion. The Holy Spirit falls on the apostles in tongues of fire, and they begin speaking in tongues so that everyone who's listening hears what they're saying in their own language. Peter immediately preaches a sermon that adds 3,000 new believers. And in the midst of that, you might be under the impression that the purpose of that first Pentecost was to spread Christianity to lots of different cultures. But that is not correct. You see, Scripture tells us that of all of those 3,000 converts, every single one of them was Jewish. They lived in different places, they spoke different languages, but Scripture tells us that they were, quote-unquote, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. At Pentecost, the good news spread within the confines of Jewish culture. And it continued this way for about 10 years. The apostles thought their mission was to convince the Jew- their Jewish brothers and sisters that Jesus was the Messiah. They never really even thought about reaching out to non-Jews. It was really kind of inconceivable to them. I mean, the Gentiles were unclean. So the apostles could really only comp- comprehend God well through the lens of their cultural experience. And ultimately, their view of God was great but not great enough. And so we come to Acts chapter 10. Here, the apostle Peter has a vision where God tells him three times, what God has made clean, do not call common. And immediately afterward, three strangers who work for a Roman centurion named Cornelius come to Peter's door looking for Simon who is called Peter. Now generally, if three strange men come to your door looking for you and say, would you please come with us? That does not end well. 
I mean, I've seen enough movies and television to, to tell you that those guys are probably either CIA, Russian spies, or cyborgs sent from the future to eliminate me before I launch the rebellion against Skynet. Either way, it is not going to turn out well for me. And so Peter goes to the door, and these three guys say, Come with us, Simon, who is called Peter. And Peter says, Yeah, sure, let me just grab my coat. Which is how you know this is God, because that's not normal. In any case, the men take him to Caesarea, which is a different country. In modern day, it would be like they threw Peter into their car and drove him to Mexico. And when Peter gets there, he meets Cornelius in his household. And Cornelius tells him, God told us to send for you and see what you have to say. And if I was Peter, I would have been like, because what do I say? I spent the last 10 years in one place, in one culture, speaking to one kind of people, and now this is totally different. What do I say now? And that is where we pick up the story in chapter 10 of Acts, starting in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now I want to pause here and emphasize, in saying, Truly I understand, Peter is admitting that up until this very moment, he didn't understand. See, before, his view of God was not great enough to admit the possibility that God would love people from another country, another culture, another religion, just as much as God loved Peter's own people. But now, Peter understands. Continuing on, he says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to, judge the, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now I want to pause here and emphasize that Peter's message to the Gentiles here is very subtly different than his message to the Jews on Pentecost. If I was to pick one sentence from all of that that was probably the best summary of the good news of the gospel, I would probably pick that last one, Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's a pretty good one-sentence summary of the good news, and so you might be surprised to know that that idea never came up in Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Never mentions that. All the rest is pretty much the same. He says how Jesus came, how Jesus preached the good news, healed the sick, died, was raised, and sent his apostles out as witnesses. But on Pentecost, 
there's no mention that his hearers need to believe in Jesus. For whatever reason, Peter had to be in this place in front of these Gentile non-believers to call his listeners to faith in Christ. Going on, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Now I want to remind you that the listeners at the original Pentecost did not speak in tongues. The apostles spoke in tongues, people heard, and 3,000 people followed, but the Holy Spirit only came to the few. We sang a song during worship that said, Revival, we want to see your kingdom here. You guys remember that song, Revival? How many of you have ever prayed for God to send revival, spiritual revival into your community? Amen. It is a good prayer. And when we pray that, we need to recognize that we are, that uh, we need to recognize that Pentecost was not a revival. You see, in a revival, the power of the Spirit is released to move through God's people. It does not stay confined within the walls of the church or just with a religious few. It spreads. And so when you are praying for revival, you are not praying for Acts chapter 2. You're praying for Acts chapter 10. Because Peter... This, Peter speaking to the Gentiles, stepping out of his culture and his comfort zone is the first revival move of the Spirit in Christianity. The Spirit spreads from the speaker directly to the listeners, and the thing that kept it from happening in Acts chapter 2, and the thing that keeps it from happening in our lives as much as we want, is that our view of God is not great enough. Because you see... Peter was not amazed just that the listeners started speaking in tongues. Us Pentecostals would like to think that was the most impressive thing, but it wasn't. He was amazed that they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. In the original Greek, that word extolling is megalino, a word that is relatively difficult to translate into modern English. So some of your translations might say that they were exalting God. Others say they were praising God. If you have the King James, it says they were magnifying God. But that word megalino literally means to make great. Peter was amazed because he heard them speaking in tongues and making God great. Because, you see, there's rejoicing in heaven for every new believer. Every soul that comes home gets a celebration. But when the Holy Spirit penetrates through culture and transmits directly from one heart to another, that revival move is something else entirely. Because when these things happen, God is made greater in our sight. Amen. The passage concludes, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain for some days. And so this morning, I want us to talk about God's greatness. And I have three things I want you to understand about the greatness of God, three aspects of his greatness that we are going to discuss because God is great in size, he is great in strength, and he is great in significance. Size, strength, 
and significance. When we say God is great, we usually mean one of those things. And so to begin with, first thing, God is great in size. When we say he's great, sometimes we mean he's just really, really, really big. Great, immense, enormous, huge, vast. As the psalmist wrote, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Or when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Because you are so great. Uh, or another spot, in Isaiah, the, the angels cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Heck, we even sing it in Sunday school. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the... Did you ever stop to think how big God's hands have to be for that to be true? <laughs> huge, huge hands. Our first sense of God's greatness almost always has to do with his size. He's so great, so immense, that every aspect of him is beyond human comprehension. And so in some sense, understanding God's greatness always comes down to realizing that God is bigger than we thought. And that is the root of one of the translations of the word megalino, magnify. When the Gentiles heard the good news, they began speaking in tongues and magnifying God, making God bigger. And this is a useful analogy that I'm going to work over the next 20 minutes or so. Does anyone know what this is? What is it? It's a magnifying glass, yes. And what does a magnifying glass do? It makes things look bigger. It makes them bigger in our sight. Scripture teaches us that when we put our faith in God, when we believe in the name of Jesus, it magnifies God. It makes him bigger in our sight. However, and this is important, faith is not like a magnifying glass. You probably weren't expecting me to say that. So I just got the magnifying glass out. But faith is not like a magnifying glass. Because you see, a magnifying glass is useful for seeing things that are small. A magnifying glass is actually the opposite of helpful if you're trying to see something large. So, for example, if you go forward, I think it's probably two slides here. Go forward. Go. Keep going. There you go. There you go. All right. Can anyone tell me what that is a picture of? Just shout out. What is that? What is that? Someone says an elephant, scales. Any other guesses? Lots of guesses. I didn't actually hear the correct answer because this is a rhinoceros. It's kind of hard to recognize because though it's big, it's been magnified a little bit too much. All right, I'll give you another chance. Next, next slide has another picture. All right, anybody have a guess what that is? Rocks. Somebody said rocks. They are indeed rocks. Any guesses about what, what these rocks are, are part of? Oh, somebody got it. These are part of the, one of the pyramids at Giza, also known as the Great Pyramid. A little bit hard to recognize when it's magnified that much. You see, if you want to see something big, a magnifying glass is not helpful. It is far more helpful 
to have one of these. I borrowed this telescope, so if it breaks, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> a telescope. You see, a telescope helps someone who is far away see something more clearly. It's helpful for seeing things like planets, planets and galaxies and nebulae. I have some pictures of things you can see with a telescope. And the point is, if you want to see something great, you don't need a magnifying glass. You need a telescope. And our problem is that we spend too much time going around with our magnifying glass faith. You see, the magnifying glass faith looks at the things that are familiar, the things that are nearby, the things that are comfortable, and it seeks for God in those things within those narrow confines. And now, don't get me wrong, magnifying glass faith will discover God because God is everywhere and in everything. But a magnifying glass will only ever show you a small God. Maybe it's a God who will speak to you for a few moments during your devotional in the morning or one who will help you not miss the bus on the way to work. Maybe it's a God who will correct your most minuscule mistakes or help you sleep peacefully at night, but magnifying glass face, faith only shows you a small God. If you want to see a great God, you need something that is going to help you to search near and far, high and low, because the first thing we have to understand is that though God may be near to us, we can still be far from him. So far that in fact we need a telescope to see him more clearly. You see, we might feel that we are stuck in failure and sin, but with the telescope of faith, we can see ourselves presented spotless before the throne of grace. We might look at the person beside the side of the road who is begging for change, and we might think that they are unlovely, but with the telescope of faith, we can see that person one day praising God with the beautiful choir of the redeemed. We might think that God is never going to move in our family, in our community, in our country, but with the telescope of faith, we can see a God who is working out his glory, rescuing the fatherless and the widow, providing food for the hungry, setting captives free. Come on, saints, let us praise God with the telescope of faith. And you see, this is why the church must be committed to missions and outreach. Because how can you say God is great unless you have sought him out, explored the extent of his greatness? If you say God is great and someone says, how great is he? What do you have to say in response? If our God is only great within the walls of the church, then our God is too small. This is why PT recently sent a team to Honduras, and I have some pictures, to work with our friends down there. They had a bit of a unique trip, uh, and 
I think there will be other opportunities to talk about this. I think they're going to present some, some, some of the, what happened during the trip. If you want to know more, though, just ask one of the team members. But the other interesting thing is that, that very same week that this team was in Honduras, we had another team that went down to the border of Mexico to work at a detention center for asylum seekers. And the point of these trips is that by going outside of our culture and working side by side with other Christians, these teams came back having formed relationships with people across the world who believe in the same great God. And if you ask them why God is great, they will have an answer for you. And you don't actually have to get on a plane just to participate in missions. CBC this summer is participating in a great adventure doing a missions project right here in Cambridge. Because, you know, there are probably people from different countries, different cultures, different religions that live on your street or in your apartment building or in your dorm. Unlike Peter, we don't necessarily have to go to them because some of them have come to us. And so right now, CBC's team is participating in making God greater in our community through prayer, through evangelism, through service and hospitality. And so I invite you to join with me in praying for the success of that mission. And if you're here and you're participating in that mission, I look forward to hearing what our great God is doing and has done. So that is two ways you could be involved in making God great. But there are more. Oh, let me tell you, there are more. As you may have heard, there are actually two type of types of people who are required to make missions work. There are the goers, and there are the senders. You need both. If everybody went, church would be empty. So if you're not a goer, maybe you're a sender. And if you are a sender, I have two special opportunities that I want to just highlight for you right now. The first is the opportunity to send a new missionary into the field. And her name is Amanda McCoy. Some of you may know Amanda. Anybody know Amanda in the audience? There we go. Okay, lots of CBC people know her. She actually did her residency here in Boston. And as part of that residency, she did an internship in Kenya. And while she was there, God ignited in her a passion for the Kenyan people. Uh, as you can see, I, I just took a screenshot of her, her webpage here. And she is currently working to raise support so that she can return to Kenya and provide much-needed health care and training, serving, in her own words, the children, the poor, and the widows. And if you're here this morning and you feel called to help send Amanda on her way, either by supporting her monetarily or praying for her, or if you just want to find out more about what she's doing, I encourage you to come talk to me or to Pastor Dan after the service. We will certainly get you connected. On the other end of the timeline, PT, uh, at PT, one of the missions we support is the work of the Fuentes family in Indonesia. Uh, so they've been there for about four years, and they've seen some amazing things witnessing to Muslims, including a crusade in which 2,000 people answered the altar call, and 700 people were baptized. Amen? Now, just last month, the Fuentes family came back to the United States for a year of furlough. And praise God, they were able to find an apartment for mom, dad, and all four kids, which in New England is no small feat. But after having been in Indonesia for four years, they have no furniture. They need bunk beds, a sofa, a kitchen table, a washer dryer, a bedroom set. They don't have any of those things. 
They are happy to take gently used items and they only need to borrow them because in a year, they're going back to Indonesia. And so I know there are some of you out there who have the hookup for this kind of thing, either through your work or your network of friends or your family. But if you feel called this morning to help the Fuentes family and help us get one of these items for them, I would encourage you to please come to talk to me or Elder Roy after the service because we would love to be able to show the Fuentes family how great our God is. Amen. And if you feel like I just threw a whole bunch of opportunities at you and you have no idea how you're going to remember them all, don't worry. We have some handouts on the back table that you can pick up on your way out the sanctuary that summarize the different things that you can do. All right? You don't have to remember them all. But Peter had to be on mission in order to see the great God. He needed to be willing to go outside the church, his culture, his comfort zone. And like Peter, we need to put away our magnifying glasses. Because the world needs Christians with telescope faith, faith that makes God bigger so that those who are far from God can see him clearly. Amen. So that's the first point. God is great in size. He is really big. But sometimes when we say great, we mean something different. When we say someone's great, we mean they're actually strong. And that's because you know, in our experience, great size usually goes with great strength, right? A rhino is big, and because a rhino is big, it is also strong. And it's the same with God. God is great in size, and we can understand that in part because of his great strength. As the psalmist writes, great is our Lord and abundant in power. And you are great and do wondrous things. Or as David declared, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Or as Moses wrote, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. We even sang this in a song during worship. We sang, great and mighty is our Savior. It is important that we recognize that not only is God big, he is active, he is able, he is strong. And this is important because a magnifying glass will lie to you. See, what a magnifying glass does is it takes things that are small and makes them look bigger than they actually are. And that can be terrifying. For example... A spider that large would be terrifying. Some of you who are arachnophobes out there are probably averting your eyes from the screen, so we'll move to the next one. If an ant that big invaded our sanctuary, all of you would run. Some of you, if you saw a regular ant in the sanctuary, you would run. We're not going to go there. The point is that if a monster-sized insect invaded the sanctuary, I don't care how holy you are, how faithful you are, you would be out the door like a shot. And some of you would be tripping your brothers and sisters on the way out the door. <laughs> yeah, I went there. Because if me and Elder Cam are running from a monster, I don't have to outrun the monster. I just have to outrun Elder Cam. <laughs> And so if I give him a little bit of help on the way to glory, I'm really not doing anything wrong. I'm doing him a favor. He would be dying in church. That is like a free pass into heaven. (laughs) 
But the point is that we don't actually have to be afraid because ants and spiders are not that big. They are small. They only look big because the pictures are lying to you. They have magnified the image far beyond its natural proportion. And that is the problem with magnifying glass faith. It magnifies our fears and our problems and makes them look bigger than they are. And our God seems too small. You see, fear is like the magnifying glass. Oh, sorry. Forgot one thing. Because when trouble comes, what we need is to know that we serve a great God. And that is why we need telescope faith. Because while a magnifying glass takes things that are small and makes them look bigger than they are, a telescope takes things that are great and brings them closer to their actual size. Come on now, that is a good word. Chris, you got it. You see, fear is like the magnifying glass. It exaggerates the danger of small things, but faith is the telescope that brings things into their proper perspective. Faith acquaints us with a God who is big and mighty. It acquaints us with a God who is so great that not only can he look at your problems and say, yeah, I got that. He can look at them and say, not only can I handle this, you need to know that this is a small thing for me because I am great. It takes a great God to heal sickness. It takes a great God to rescue his people. It takes a great God to win victory over death. Someone needs to praise God because he is great. So that is the second aspect of God's greatness. We need this telescope of faith to see God's greatness. Amen. So he is great in strength. He's great in size. He's great in strength. Those are the first two points. The last aspect of God's greatness is his significance. But you see, God is also great in the sense that he is important, famous, worthy of attention. Scripturally, this is what is often referred to as God's name. His name is not just a combination of letters. It also connotes God's reputation. As Jeremiah writes, There is none like you, Lord, for you are great, and great is your name. Or Samuel, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Here, the writers are talking about the Lord's reputation or significance. And this is probably the most subtle thing for us to understand because sometimes we get a little bit obsessed with God's immensity and power, and we create a mental image of God that is a bit distorted. We think of God as huge and powerful and strong. He is the rock. That's right. We think God is Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> You see, Dwayne Johnson is huge and powerful and strong, and sometimes he calls himself the rock. God is also huge and powerful and strong, and he is the rock upon which we can found our lives, but God is not like Dwayne Johnson. Because you see, Dwayne Johnson is significant. He's important. 
only because he is huge and powerful. I promise you, if Dwayne Johnson was five foot four and 110 pounds, you would not know who he is. God, on the other hand, God is immense and mighty and powerful, but his reputation, his significance is not based solely on being the biggest and the baddest and the strongest. God's name itself is great. And I think this is a challenge for us because sometimes we think God is only important because he can punch bad guys in the mouth. He's only great because he can solve our problems. He's only great because he's bigger than our fears. The nation of Israel had a bit of this problem around the time of the birth of Christ. You see, they were trapped under an oppressive Roman rule, and they had been waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And they had heard the prophecies about how the Messiah would be great. And they assumed that that meant he would come with great military power and lead the Israelites into battle and overthrow the Roman oppressors and crush Israel's enemies under his feet. They, that was their vision of what it meant to be great. They were waiting for Dwayne Johnson. Because Dwayne Johnson, the Messiah, would not have let the Romans crucify him. Oh, no. He would have taken that cross and broken it over his leg. He would have body slammed the guards, suplexed the centurions, dropped the people's elbow on Pontius Pilate. But that is what a great Messiah would do, right? He'd clean house. Certainly, the Messiah would never willingly, admit, willingly submit to his own execution. That doesn't sound very great. And 10 years later, here's Peter, one of the few people who actually believed Jesus was the Messiah. Here he is going to share the good news of Jesus with the enemies he had hoped the Messiah would defeat. Oof. That takes a special kind of faith. Faith in a God who is not great just because he is almighty, but a God who is great simply because of who he is. A God with a great name. At the incarnation, the God who is gigantic and powerful became small and weak in the form of a helpless child. And he did this because God's greatness is not just about those things. See, there are many things that are great and powerful. The laws of physics are omnipresent and control everything, but physics is not great like our God is great because physics does not care about you. And perhaps the greatest demonstration of God's, of, of God's greatness is his great mercy towards his people and his great love for those who are lost. Peter had to come face to face with that. He had to accept that God loved these unclean, uncircumcised Roman Gentiles. That God's plan wasn't to show his greatness by overwhelming them or crushing them. No, his greatness would be magnified if these unclean Gentiles would just believe in Jesus' name. Jesus, who voluntarily laid down the power and the honor that was his so that he could fully demonstrate God's great love for his people. Jesus, who became nothing in order to magnify the greatness of God. 
You see, it's striking to me that even though the Israelites were looking for the Messiah, when he finally came, they missed him. See, and I think this is explained because they had placed their focus in the wrong place. The only difference between a telescope and a microscope is where you place the focus. They have exactly the same optics, but a microscope places the focus in one location, and a telescope places the focus in a quite different location. And when you have, when an, when you have something go far enough out of focus, something really interesting happens, the image can turn upside down. I wanted to do this as a demonstration for you, uh, but I couldn't figure out how to get all 500 of you to look through the same magnifying glass. So you'll have to trust me, but if, if I have something close up to the magnifying glass, it stays in focus, it's clear. And if I move the magnifying glass away from my eye, things go out of focus. They become blurry. But if I keep moving that magnifying glass away, every, eventually things come back into focus, but they are upside down. You can see that in the picture here on the screen. In the background, you see the sky on top like it normally is, but seen through the very far out of focus lens, it looks upside down. And it was exactly this way for the Israelites. They were looking for the Messiah, but they had placed their focus in the wrong place. And over 400 years of waiting, their focus got so far off that they saw things upside down. And so when Jesus came, he encountered people who looked at the souls God wanted to save and saw them as enemies. He looked at people, he came to people who thought that love was weak. He came to people who thought that forgiveness was undignified. And he came and taught them how to turn things right side up again. Teaching them, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and reject your name as evil. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Because whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And some of us this morning need exactly that. We need Jesus to come and turn our world right side up again. When we put our faith in Christ, it brings God into focus. It turns our world right side up again because Jesus is the image of the great God. Jesus captures God's greatness and brings it close so that we can see it experience it, feel it, and when we place our faith in his name, the significance of God becomes clearer to us. And that is all I have to teach you this morning. Peter's interaction with the Gentiles teaches us that when we share the, the name of Jesus with others, God's greatness can be magnified. We can come to better understand his great size, his great strength, his great significance. And my prayer for you this morning is that that God, that God would be made great in your lives today. <laughs>